Good morning, church. This morning, our passage is from James chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's page 1011, 10, 11. Let's hear the word of God. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is the word of God. Before we get into James, let me just say that these beautiful flowers this morning were placed here by Arch Mauser in honor of his wife Doris for their 61st wedding anniversary. So congratulations to Arch and Doris. Where are they? There they are. Praise God. We are in a brand new series this week on the book of James. The subtitle is Real Wisdom, Real Faith. Real Wisdom, Real Faith. There's a couple of things we need to understand about the book of James, about this letter, if we're going to appreciate all that James has to offer us. You see, when you read the book of James, when you read this letter, it's not going to read like one of Paul's letters, which tend to be more logical and theological, theologically dense, right? He's laying out a particular argument about Christian doctrine and faith. James doesn't do that. He covers a lot of topics, often in rapid succession. There's a lot of commands in this book. 54 commands in just five chapters. James is considered wisdom literature. Wisdom literature. In other words, it's not so much an explanation of the gospel itself, but an explanation how to live in light of the gospel. You see, James is wanting us to understand very practically how do you let the gospel play out in, in all aspects of your life. That's wisdom literature. Taking the Christian faith and applying it to various situations in our lives. That's why our subtitle for the book of James is Real Wisdom, Real Faith. We need wisdom in this complex world. We need faith. James is seeking to equip us as Christians with a real, a visible, and a productive faith. Not just a private faith, not just the faith that, that is invisible, a faith that is visible, a faith that is lived out, a faith that does things. He makes it clear, and we're going to wrestle with chapter 2, that a real faith, a true faith, is a faith that works. A faith in action. In a world, if we're going to live as Christians in a world that is broken and warped, a world where there's so much struggle and pain, a world where everyone takes sides, a world where suspicion is, in a, is at an all-time high, we're going to need real wisdom to navigate life's complexities and to live out a real faith. Hence the book of James. 
Today, these first four verses, we're going to look at the perspective and, per- perspective and purpose in our trials. Perspective and purpose in our trials. Having a proper perspective in life is incredibly important. Have you ever been in a situation where you lost perspective? Where you kind of lost what was going on, why was happening, the big picture? As many of you know, last fall, our family, my family, we sold our house. We lived in a, a rancher here in Bowie, and we sold it and moved three streets down. We literally just could have had everyone carry one box three streets down and moved to our, our other, a new house with a, a little bit more space. We lived in our old house for 11 years. We loved that house. Never really had any major issues go wrong. Not, no leaks, no, no emergencies. It was just a good house. And, and we moved into a, this house, which needed a lot of work and a lot of renovation, and we, we knew what we were getting into, we thought. <laughs> and so, you know, there were things that we planned out. We knew we were going to renovate a bathroom. We knew we were going to tear out all the carp- old carpet and the floors. And we knew there was a lot of electrical work that needed to happen. And, and, and AC and, 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 and furnace had to be replaced. And we had a lot of help from many of you, praise God. But as the work dragged on, my wife and I started to lose steam physically. And mentally. Uh, it, it was a few weeks into the, the project. We were tired. We were working super early in the morning into late into the night. Danny Beth was trying to homeschool the kids, and there was saws and hammering going on from the moment she woke up, sometimes before she woke up, till much after everyone went to bed. And we were trying to make it through, and that's when we discovered, unbeknownst to us, a leak in a pipe in our laundry room. And it was coming from under the concrete. And, you know, there were other things that went wrong. The fridge was leaking. We didn't know. The cabinets in the kitchen started falling off. And we were like, you know, throwing stuff. Might as well, you know, whatever. (laughs) But, you know, this leak just got to us. We were stunned. We were upset. It was the um, the straw that broke the camel's back for us. It felt like everything was going wrong. It literally felt like the, the house was laughing at us. And it started to mess with our minds. It felt like we would never fix all our problems, that we were just put sinking money into a a sinking ship. We we asked ourselves, do we buy a lemon? The problems in the house started to color everything in our lives. It literally spilled into everything Danny Beth and I were talking about, and we we would have pity parties all the time, and we would we would lament, and then finally one day a church member was in our home, uh, free of charge, helping us fix something, and he and he he could tell we were bothered, and he said, "Well, what's wrong?" and and Danny Beth, who doesn't ever complain, she just kind of spilled it all. She was like, "This is what's wrong. You want to know what's wrong?" And I was just amening. Yep, yep. Everything she said. And we fully expected him to confirm. This guy knows what he's talking about. He's an expert. And we thought he'd be like, you know what? You're doomed. You're right. But he didn't. He reassured us. He he said, yes, you have some problems to fix. He he sat with us. He said, it's a lot. You've been going through a lot. But he also reminded us that this is normal homeowner stuff. This is a good house, he said. And you're going to get these problems fixed and you're going to enjoy living in it, so just take it easy. It's not like anything he said was magical or profound, but it is what we needed to hear. 
Because he was simply putting things in perspective. And he was right. A proper perspective helped us keep going. Helped us keep doing the work. Helped us keep showing one another grace and helped us keep trusting God. James begins by talking about having perspective and even joy in the midst of our trials. And ironically, here's the irony. It's precisely during our trials when we need perspective the most that we lose it the quickest. And James is wanting to remind us, to show us what God has to say about our trials and and importantly, what He has to say about our perspective and His purpose in our trials. Let's look at this. Lesson number one. Appreciate the man who is teaching us about trials. Before we get into the text, I, I think you really need to understand what this letter is teaching us by knowing the person who's writing it to us. Verse 1 says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are several James in the New Testament, but the overwhelming evidence is that this is James, the half-brother of Jesus. Literally, the son of Mary and Joseph. Born after Jesus, of course, right? Jesus was born before Mary and Joseph were even married. James came later, raised in the same home as Jesus. For most of Jesus' ministry, this James, along with the rest of his family, we learn in the Gospels that, that he didn't actually believe Jesus was the Messiah. He thought Jesus was crazy. But at some point, James experienced a dramatic conversion. And it says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7, Paul tells us that after the resurrection of Jesus, he appeared, it says in verse 7, quote, he appeared to James, then to all the other apostles. Isn't it interesting? James gets, is the only person who gets a one-on-one resurrection encounter with Jesus. Surely James knew that Jesus was different. He saw Jesus grow up, grow up probably got annoyed at how Jesus never did anything wrong, always obeyed his parents, goody two-shoes Jesus. And then he grows up, and of course, you know, he, you know they, they think, oh, he's got the Messiah complex, he's such a goody kid. And then he grows up, and then he acts like he is a Messiah. And he's preaching, and he's healing, and he's doing all kinds of miracles, and he's claiming to forgive sin. But then Jesus rises from the dead after James saw him being murdered on a cross and he sees Jesus face to face and it changed his life. It changed everything. So much so that not long after that we learn in the book of Acts that this same James, the brother of Jesus, would become a leader in the early church. When Paul is commissioned by God as an apostle, he tells us that he goes up to Jerusalem to the church there, and he says in Galatians 1.19, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. James was the lead pastor, lead elder of the Jerusalem church, and he helped that church in Acts navigate some major issues. Not only that, scholars tell us They date this book, this letter you're reading, to about 44 A.D. Fifteen years or so after the death of Jesus. Ten ten or twelve years after the death of Jesus. Which means James is the first New Testament document ever written. And the first Christian writing of any kind that we know of. 
Isn't that amazing? Other historical writings, Josephus quotes others telling us that James, this James, was arrested by Jewish authorities in 62 AD, dragged to the top of the mountain, top of the temple in Jerusalem, and he was told to stop preaching that Jesus is the Christ because too many were believing. They told him, stop it. And he said, I will not deny Christ. I will not stop preaching Christ. And they threw him off the temple. But he didn't die, so they went down to his mangled body and they stoned him and they beat him until he died. Why do I share that? Because when you hear this James say to you and I, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, you can know the kind of man who's saying this. You can know that this is a man who lived what he taught That he experienced the grace of God in such a life-changing way that he literally considered himself a servant, he says, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word there is literally slave. I am living in, in humble submission to Jesus as my king, my master. And he says to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, meaning to the Christians who have been scattered throughout the Roman Empire. Appreciate the man who's teaching us about trials lest you're, so, you're hasty to dismiss what he's going to say. Lesson number two, gain a proper perspective on your trials. James begins with a, a pastoral tone. He addresses the readers as my brothers. Count it all joy, my brothers. The word brothers there is gender neutral. In, in other words, it, it should read my brothers and sisters. But there's affection here. You can tell he cares deeply about the ones whom he's writing to. He cares about these Christians. He knows that they've been dispersed largely, largely because they've been persecuted for their faith in Christ. And yet he speaks of what, when they meet various trials. When they meet trials of various kinds. This tells us two things. First, he doesn't say if you meet trials, but when. In other words, living in a fallen world and living as Christians in a fallen world means that trials are inevitable. The Bible never says if you experience tribulation, it says when. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you're exempt from trials. Contra whatever, you're listening, whatever books you'll, you'll get in the Christian self-help section of the bookstore or on Amazon. Second, he says various trials. He's not talking about a particular kind of trial, but all, but all kinds of trials. And that's really important for us because when we are enduring hardship, it's easy for every one of us to think that my situation is different than anyone, everyone else around me, that I'm the exception and nobody else can appreciate and nobody else can understand. And James says, no, 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 no. I'm talking about all trials here. Whatever you are going through, that's what I'm talking about right now. That's who I'm addressing. That's what I want you to understand. He's saying, whatever you're going through today, for today, this is for you. And then he gives us a clear command. And it is a command. Count it all joy. The word all modifies joy. 
It doesn't mean count our situations joy. It means count everything as pure joy. Real joy. Now wait a minute. Is James living in reality? Is the Bible just calling us to pretend like everything is okay? Are we supposed to grin it and bear it? Are we supposed to fake it till we make it? No. He's not saying consider the trials joy. He's not a masochist. He's not, a, he's not saying be a glutton for punishment. Nor does he say you can't have joy until the trials go away. Notice that. He's not saying consider the trials themselves joyful, and nor is he saying wait till the trials are over, then you can have joy. He's saying in the midst of your trials, you can have real joy, genuine joy. The word, verse 2, count. Other translations say consider it. The word count is the Greek word that means to think, to analyze, to evaluate. So James is commanding us to think a certain way. That's the command, to think differently about when you're going through trials. He wants us to consider our trials from a different perspective than we normally do. You see, normally when life gets hard, when troubles come, we think, just immediately we think, I must have done something wrong. And that's why this trial has come upon me. God must be mad at me. James says, you need to make a conscious decision of the mind and of the will to think differently about the trials when they come. The other thing about a trial is that when you're going through one, as I mentioned about my, our house issue, it seems to overshadow everything else in life, doesn't it? When you're dealing with something hard, your whole life becomes consumed with that thing. It's all you think about. It's all you worry about. It's all you talk about. What's happening? You realize what's happening is that your, your, your perspective has narrowed? God wants us to have a wide-angle lens in life. For all the photographers in here, for all three of the photographers in here, and all the other fake photographers in here, God wants us to have a wide-angle lens in life to make sure we always have God cropped into the picture, that we make sure we always have the sense that we understand that God is doing something a lot bigger than our trials and our problems. But when life stinks, and I quote my professor all the time, when life stinks, our perspective shrinks. And so when we're dealing with adversity and hardship, what we do is we put on a zoom lens. And all we see is that thing. It's all we can think about. And all we can, and, and it keeps us up at night. And, it's all we, and we're trying to analyze that thing. And we crop God out of the picture. That's why the first thing that James calls us to do is to enlarge your perspective. Count it all joy is a call to think differently about what is happening in our lives. Christian, God is not out to get you. He is out to rescue you. He's out to shape you and to draw you into himself. That's what he's always been about. 
The way we consider or evaluate our trials is meant to bring us joy, he says. Not happiness, joy. Happiness is often circumstantial. If it's sunny outside, you're happy. If it's, if it's gloomy outside, we're sad. No, this is more of a deeper soul joy. One definition of joy I found helpful. Quote, a supernatural response of deep, steady, and thankful trust in God. A supernatural response of deep, steady, and thankful trust in God. Joy is being able to look at the trials in your life not just for what they are, but for what God may be doing in and through them. Not that we deny our trials, not that we deny that they're really hard and painful. You, if you know my heart, church, you know my heart, and you know, if anything, I tend to teach on suffering more than, than anything else. Why? Because, my, because of my story. And so I, I have taught, and we, Pastor Brady and I have taught repeatedly, the Bible teaches us it's okay to feel sad, it's okay to grieve. In fact, it's part of how God ministers to our soul for us to lament and grieve, to cry out to Him in our pain. We don't cover up. We suffer quorum Deo, face to face with God. So he's not, I'm not minimizing our suffering or our sorrows. But James is calling us to evaluate our circumstances, evaluate our trials with the perspective that our sovereign and wise God is up to something. I may not know what, I may never know what, but I know he must be up to something and that this hardship has value and meaning for something I may, I may never fully comprehend, but I trust that there is value and meaning in it. Warren Wearsby sums it up this way, the late Bible teacher. He says, quote, Our values determine our evaluations. If we value comfort more than character, then trials will upset us. If we live only for the present and forget the future, trials will make us bitter, not better. He's simply saying, we, God is calling us to enlarge our perspective on our trials. To appreciate, lesson number three also, that we consider God's purpose in our trials. That's why he says, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. One major purpose of trials is to produce steadfastness in us. The word steadfastness means perseverance or endurance. Trials put us in situations where we find it hard to keep going. We find it hard to keep trusting and to keep loving. And because it is hard... We are being stretched to endure, to keep going. And when that happens, God is developing steadfastness in us. In other words, our character is being shaped. Notice verse 3, the first couple words. For you know. Christian, can I just ask you? Do you know that your trials are producing something incredibly valuable in you? He assumes you know this. But I don't assume you know this. Because I know me and I know us. Do you know 
that your trials are producing a steadfastness in you, a greater ability to persevere? Do you know that your trials are deepening your faith in Christ, your dependence on Christ? James is making it very clear, God is at work behind every trial. He is always, he, he's often a behind-the-scenes God. We saw this at work in Genesis in the life of Joseph. We see it all the time, Habakkuk. We looked at Joseph's life and we saw that God was working behind the scenes, the unseen hand of God, shaping the circumstances in many ways that caused Joseph harm. And yet God was at work and with him through it all. He says, for you know that the testing of your faith, the word testing means the process of determining the genuineness or worth of something. Your faith in Christ is incredibly valuable. Do you know this? The same word for testing is used by Peter in 1 Peter when he says in verse 6 to 7, you've been grieved by various trials, same word, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Hardships test our faith like nothing else. And they're there to prove that our faith is genuine. Hardships reveal just how much we actually believe what we say we believe. You see, faith is like a muscle in your body. Our faith is like the muscles in our body. The more we exercise our muscles, the stronger our bodies get. But in order to exercise muscle, you have to actually stretch them to the point where they tear so that more muscle is built where it was torn. Muscles are stretched, and that's how they get stronger. But it takes sacrifice, it's very painful, it's sweaty, it's hard. Trials are the same way. They're hard, they're painful, and yet they provide this unique opportunity for us to cling to God and His promises. And when that happens, our, our trials are actually growing our faith, shaping us into the character of Christ, and that's the goal of the Christian life. It is simply impossible to develop things like humility and compassion and, and faith without trials. You say, I want to be more compassionate. Show me a way to do that without having been through something hard. The most compassionate people I know have been through some stuff and that has led them to, to, to be able to understand and identify and feel what others are going through. Show me someone who has a, a deep humility and I'll, and I'll show you something they've been through that has humbled them to the core. James says the purpose of trials is to produce steadfastness. That's not a passive word, right? It's not the word, it's not like the word patience, how we kind of think like that. Like, um, you know, you're in an airplane and the pilot gets on and says, thank you for your patience where there's a de delay on the runway. It'll be another 30 minutes. Well, you didn't give me a choice there, guy. All right? I, I have to be patient. I'm stuck on this plane. That's not this word. It's not passive. Steadfastness is literally the word hyperstand. It's the word stand with the, with the thing in the front of it that means hyperstand. 
It's a picture of a person bearing up under a heavy load and is determined to stay rather than escape. Hyperstand. Someone who's bearing up under a heavy load and rather than saying, I'm done, they bear up under it, even if it pushes them further, even if they feel like it's too hard, they stand up under it, they bear up under it. He's saying, that's what it produces in you. That's what trials do in you. They produce an ability to stand under the trials, to endure. Let's say Lenny is a Christian and she studies her Bible and she's praying to the Lord. And she's engaging in community. And she's prioritizing worshiping with her church family. She's trying to share her faith with people at work. In other words, she's just living the normal Christian life. But then she stumbles into a trial. Something really hard happening in her life. Now what should she do? She has a choice. Try to escape the hardship... Right? Change something about how she's living to minimize the pain, retreat and become bitter or closed off or isolated, more anxious. Or she can hyperstand. She can stand up under it. She can persevere. And so she reads her Bible, even though it's harder to read her Bible in the midst of a trial. And she's praying, even though it's harder to pray. Maybe she's praying with greater desperation. Or maybe she's praying with greater disappointment and more questions. But she's still praying. And she still engages in community. Even though she goes into her small group and she feels like nobody else is suffering as much as she does. But she keeps showing up to her small group. She keeps gathering to worship. Because even if she can't sing the songs, she sees brother so-and-so and and sister so-and-so. She knows they've been through some stuff. And they're singing, even though I'm going through the fiery trial, Jesus, you are still good and she listens to them saying that with tears in her eyes and it gives her a little more strength to keep going what's she doing she's hyper standing she's weak she's wounded and she's still holding on and she won't let go and what's God doing he's shaping her into the image of Christ He's letting steadfastness have its full effect so she becomes mature and complete, not lacking in anything. If you ask a non-Christian or if you ask Christians who don't believe the Bible, they say God wasn't involved in that. God has nothing to do with that. Well, okay, if you, okay. That's great. You might as well eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Right? That's a non-Christian point of view. This world is all there is. And so that, sure, if you have a secular mindset and you experience trials, of course it's going to crush you because this is your only chance at life. But if you believe that you have Jesus now and you're going to have him for eternity, if you believe that this momentary troubles are achieving for you an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all, You see, even steadfastness in verse 3 is not the end goal. God's purposes in our trials is much deeper. That's why verse 4. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Perfect. Perfection doesn't mean morally perfect. It means you're mature in every aspect of your life. Complete means wholeness. Specifically, the, the idea that what you believe is more and more aligning with how you live. And then lacking in nothing means you're equipped spiritually to navigate 
anything that life throws your way. That's just a part of God's good purpose in our trials. James says, through all of our suffering and all of our pain, a changed perspective, cropping God in the picture, considering God's good purpose in trials can lead to real joy. That no matter the trial, it didn't catch God by surprise. That He is using even that horrible thing and doing something good in the midst of it and shaping you with the image of Christ. And James is saying, don't you realize there's nothing more precious than that? Lesson four, last one. James is calling us, teaching us to trust God's heart through your trials. If you've been listening to me and, and you're saying, Mark, that sounds nice. That's a, that's a nice talk. But joy in our suffering... That sounds a lot of pie-in-the-sky kind of stuff. I can't make myself have joy in the, when I'm in pain. And I would say, first of all, you're, you're right in that this is going to sound strange. It's going to sound countercultural. Do you think the Bible is going to tell you what you already think and feel? Do we think that we're going to read the Bible to confirm our own conclusions? Or is the Bible supernatural and going to challenge our natural ideas and shape us into more supernatural children of God? Of course it's going to sound supernatural. Of course to our ears it's going to be like, what? I don't even understand that. Okay. That just should reaffirm your faith in the authority and sufficiency of Scripture that God knows your heart more than you do. And he knows how to minister to your heart and shape your heart. God is calling us to something we can never manufacture on our own. And so trials drive us deeper into God and his promises as we learn to trust him as our good shepherd and lead us all the way home. Also, another caveat, if you're struggling with this, keep in mind, because we live in a broken and sinful world, we... The, we think the two options before us are suffering and not suffering. Wake up. Those aren't your options. Those aren't your options. I don't care what your faith background is. I don't, it doesn't matter if you believe in Christ or not this morning. Your options are never going to be suffering or not suffering. Here are your two options. Suffering with hope or suffering without hope. That, that's, that's the realm we're dealing with. Please, please, you might be inundated with, with the messaging that, that you can have it all now. But we know it's not true. As Christians, we have a living hope to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We follow Jesus who took up a cross before he put on a crown. But we know unending glory for us is just around the corner. So then what about suffering that cuts so deep that it leads a scar for the rest of your life? What about a painful divorce? The death of a child or a spouse? Abuse? A cancer diagnosis at a young age? Hurricanes that level a town? What about those things? You see, now we're dealing with the most difficult of all questions. How can there be a good God when life is so bad? 
And this is where I have to admit my own limitations as a finite human to understand the ways of an infinite God. That's not a cop-out. We're not copping out as Christians when we admit our limitations. That's not, well, it is weakness, but it's appropriate weakness. I don't know why my dad died when I was a kid. I don't know why you never knew a dad. I don't know why you're still single when you want to be married. I don't know why you can't have kids. I don't know why you have chronic pain. I don't know why you're dealing with depression or enduring a loveless marriage. I don't claim to understand the ways of God. Here is the one thing I know when it comes to our suffering and God's goodness. Please hear me. When you can't understand the ways of God, you can still trust the heart of God. How do I know that? How do I know that with absolute certainty? Because of what God has already done for you. Because of what Jesus Christ came to do. You see, James calls us to count it all joy. The word count, consider in our minds what God is doing in us, what he's growing us into, that, that, we're, that we're more enduring, that, that what he's growing us into is more enduring than the trials we face. And this means that the, the word count means we don't just examine our own trials with a new mindset. I think it also must mean that we consider Jesus with a new mindset. Hebrews 12, 2 and 3 says, Looking unto Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Consider. There's that idea again. Count. Think about what Jesus did for you. Consider him who, what? Endured. Well, now we're talking about the same word. Hyperstand. Consider what Jesus endured. Think about it. The New Testament writers say, Jesus stood under the weight, not of just trials like you and I, not of co-workers who are being jerks to us, not of a, a marriage that's all. No, what, he stood under the weight of sin. And nobody forced him to do it. He did it out of love. When he was on the cross, he bore the heaviest weight possible. And it says in Hebrews, for the joy set before him. What? You're experiencing hell on earth? For the joy set before him, he was steadfast as he was beaten and falsely accused and nailed to a cross. All the while, the joy set before him caused him to endure. Why? He was humiliated, he was rejected, and on the cross, it says in the Bible that he bore all of God's just punishment against your sin and my sin. Jesus became your substitute. He died in your place. Why? Is God cruel? No. He's infinitely loving. We just can't see the full picture. We, we, we've zoomed in on, on just Jesus dying on the cross, and if you zoom in like on that, and then you got scholars saying our, our God, is a, God of the Christianity is a cruel God, that's because you got a zoom lens on, man. Get the wide-angle lens on. Don't you see? God has said he was going to do this from the very beginning. How can God crush sin without crushing sinners? Now you realize 
The only way was for God himself to step down out of heaven and to live the life you and I should have lived but couldn't and then go to a cross and bear all of God's judgment against our sin and he bore it instead of us. He took it instead of us and God ordained it. Just read Acts 4 and Acts 2. It wasn't like God was caught by surprise. God planned to crush his son, Isaiah tells us. So that Jesus would experience hell on earth. He, he hyperstood. He remained steadfast. And because he did, that's why you and I can be forgiven. That's why you and I can be restored. That's why you and I could have everlasting life. That's why you and I can have a living hope that in all our pain now, glory is coming. It's not a fool's hope. Evil will be vanquished. Mordor will be destroyed. Whatever movie you want. That's how we count it all joy when you can't understand what God is up to. Because even when you can't understand God's ways, you can trust His heart. And the cross of Christ proves that once and for all. And if you needed proof that the cross worked, there's an empty tomb. There's an empty tomb that proves God is for you, not against you. God will never leave you. Consider Him who endured such hostility so that you won't grow faint-hearted. So that you can now stand under whatever trials you're going through. Christian, hold on to Christ because He's already holding on to you. He's doing something magnificent in you and through you that you can't even fathom. And one day, He's going to peel back the curtain and you're going to see, oh, I never would have designed it that way. And then you're going to bow before him because you see that he did. Standing before him in a new body, new heavens and new earth, sin and suffering gone, it will be all the sweeter for having gone through all the trials. Let's pray. Jesus, Help us to consider you. To think about what you went through. So that when we read your word and we hear a command that feels and seems beyond what we can do, help us to see that we are in Christ. We are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. We can count it pure joy as Jesus counted joy before him. Help us to see the work you're doing in us. Help us to lament in the midst of our trials. To not fake it, but be honest with you. God, for those who are here this morning and have never trusted Christ, maybe they've grown up in church, maybe, maybe they've heard about Jesus, maybe someone invited them here and they, they've only heard a few things, but now they've heard enough to know that Jesus, you came not to make their life beautiful and amazing and give them all their wildest dreams here and now, you came to make them right with God. You came to give them a living hope and a future. You came to give them what truly matters eternal life, rescue from sin and death, adoption into the family of God, a love that is unstoppable 
unfailing, unrelenting. Lord, for those who might be listening, watching, who've never trusted Christ, I pray maybe this would be the moment that they would turn from whatever they've been looking to, admit their sin and turn and trust Christ as Savior. Receive you by faith alone. Trust in the gift of Christ. Jesus, I think you're doing, I believe you're doing an amazing work in our church. And it's humbling us. And it's testing us. And it's stretching us. And, and, and there's the danger that we could be consumed by the ways of the world. But I believe that you have called us to rise above it and understand that you are drawing us to each other so that we can hyper stand in community. God, I don't want us to miss this moment. I don't want us as a church to miss this opportunity to let your word speak through James as we go through this fall and into the spring and let you transform us so that we are a people that have real wisdom and real faith as we live real lives for the glory of God and for the good of your saints that the church would be the wisdom of God on display. I pray to that end, Jesus. I pray to that end. I can't manufacture it, Lord. We're, we're begging you to do what only you can do. We pray you would in Jesus' name.